Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to start. And then we'll hopefully, well, Lord willing, we'll get all the way to verse 17 to be able to stay up with the Tuesday night group. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the, to set the mind on the flesh is death, and to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, we've already seen last time we were together a couple weeks ago that we are in Christ and not in the flesh because Jesus is in us and his spirit is in us. Let me remind you of that. If we looked at it earlier, and I want to point it out to you again, he's talking about the difference between being in the flesh or in the spirit and also setting your minds on the things of the flesh and setting your minds on the things of the spirit. So if you are in Christ... Are you in the flesh? No. Very good. If you are in the flesh, are you in Christ? No. Very good. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Don't be in a quick rush to answer this one. Can someone who is in the spirit set their minds on things of the flesh? Yes. Can someone who is in the flesh set their minds on things of the spirit? No. And that's what Paul's delineating here, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. Even though we are in Christ and not in the flesh because the Spirit of Christ is in us, we sometimes set our minds on things of the flesh instead of setting our minds on things of the Spirit. Go to Romans chapter 7, look at verse 15. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions... For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody else agree you have that same struggle? We're in a war. We looked at that last time. We're in a war. And God actually opened my eyes to something as I was brushing my teeth this morning. And he said, you know, this is a good idea. You should do this more. But no, I was kidding. And uh, so what he, what he really showed me was, appreciate you for laughing at that one, Bill. Thank you. But here's the deal. What did Paul say? He said, I find it a law. That when I want to do good, evil's right there. Now, when God uses the term law, it means something that has been already set in motion by his power. Let's just take the law of gravity. Can you break the law of gravity? No, you'll break your neck if you try. But, but the law of gravity has already been set. It's in motion. There's a law of giving and receiving. There's a law of the harvest, if you will. If you sow to the... 
Spirit, you'll reap things of the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap things of the flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are laws that have been set in motion by God. Natural laws, spiritual laws. God's already designed it. They're in motion, just like the law of gravity. And he said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, because we're still in the flesh, it's going to happen that your flesh, sorry, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, but since we're still in these human bodies, it's a law that there's going to be a battle. So does that mean that one day you'll get so close to Jesus, you'll never have this struggle ever again? No, not in this body. But as you're going to see later on, we can still have victory. But we need to keep this in mind. If it's a law that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So, thank God, though, because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this to you. There will be correction, but there's no condemnation. And we've got to spend a little time on this because a lot of Christians really struggle with this. The book of Hebrews, we're not going to take the time to turn there, in chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, talks about the fact that God disciplines his children. Those he loves, those are his children, he disciplines them. And by the way, if, you, if you're not being disciplined by God, you're not his child because he loves you and he wants to... Sh- by the way, the word discipline means shape, mold, train, teach. And he goes on and he says there, the Hebrew writer says, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. How much more should we submit ourselves to the father of our spirits and live? And then he says, they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short period of time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, God, disciplines us for our good. And then he makes this very powerful statement. No discipline is pleasant at the time. But later, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. But when God disciplines us, again, he will not condemn you. There is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. We're going to look at some things about that in just a second. But when he disciplines us and he corrects us because we just agreed, even though we're in the spirit and not in the flesh, we still sometimes set our minds on things of the flesh and we still sin. When he corrects us and he disciplines us in those times, we think it's punishment. We feel like God's mad at us, that God's upset with us. And Paul is saying, impossible. The love of Christ is being poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Romans chapter 5 talks about that. He's poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. He has already poured all of his wrath for all of our sin on Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you think, well, the reason my mama died is because God was mad and because I didn't do this or whatever. Or the reason I'm sick is because God's punishing me. No. If you're in Christ, all of God's wrath toward all of your sin has already been poured onto Jesus Christ, and he will never punish you. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And if you think that after salvation that God's going to punish you for something you've done and make you pay for what you've done. Remember, all discipline's not pleasant, but don't fall for a second into thinking God's mad at you or he's going to punish you and make you pay for it. Because if you think he's going to make you pay for something after salvation, you don't believe Jesus paid the full price. Either he paid the full price for your sin or he didn't. And if he did, that means even though it seems like God might be mad at me, he's not. And we've got to let that truth sink in. And he's using this to shape me and to mold me and to correct me and to train me and to teach me. Now, this is important for us. Remember, 
In Christ, we have passed from death to what? Right. But is it just life? It's what kind of life? Eternal life. And I want this to sink in. Your eternal life does not begin when you go to heaven. Your eternal life begins the moment you get saved. You have passed from death to life, but you have been given eternal life. Go with me to John chapter 5, and you're going to see something kind of fun here that will help us later on in Romans. Go to John chapter 5. Look at verses 22 through 24. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. By the way, let's stop there real quick. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you agree that most of the people in the world that would even acknowledge that there's a God, uh, the Father, that they think one day they're going to stand before God, the Father, and he's going to weigh them their good and their bad? Isn't that what they think? One day I'll stand before God and he's going to weigh my good and my bad. Well, they don't understand that actually they're not going to be standing before the Father. They're going to be standing before Jesus, the Son. He's handled all judgment over to the Son. Oh, by the way, the measurement Jesus said he's going to use is not what you've done, but whether or not he knows you. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Depart from me. I never knew you. Satan's been duping people into thinking that they're going to stand before the Father, and they're not going to stand before the Father. They're going to stand before the Son. Keep reading. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, past tense, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we've passed already from death to life, but not only that, we've passed into what kind of life? Eternal life. So if we have been given eternal life, can we go to hell? No. Can we be condemned and sent to hell? No. And not only that, as you're going to see, and we'll get right to you, and not only that, as you're going to see in a second, the one who condemns is Jesus, and he's interceding on our behalf. Go ahead. In terms of eternal life, I believe and still believe that you give an eternal life at birth. It's where you choose to spend it. <laughs> well, I can understand what you're saying. Everybody lives forever. That's true. But the Bible very clearly, though, describes what we've been given eternal life. Right. But, but keep in mind, those people in hell, that ain't life. It's eternal but you can't, you give it the word life. Do they exist forever? Yes, but you, I wouldn't use the word life, but you're right. When we use that as, as a more emphatic statement, it makes it far more, gives it far more impetus that somebody should look at following Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because everybody lives forever. You've got eternal life, but you're gonna live forever. Right. That's where you're gonna go. Exactly, as some people have said, you're gonna spend eternity forever, it's either smoking or non-smoking is the question. So go to Romans chapter eight. Go to Romans chapter 8, look at verses 33 through 39. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, before we go any further, we got to clarify this. A lot of people think that when the scripture says that Jesus is interceding for us, he's trying to calm the father down. 
That's kind of how we've been had this picture. And Lord, uh, he's, he, he's one of ours. He, he believed in me. And No, listen. If you think that Jesus is trying to calm the Father down on your behalf, you've got God the Father feeling one way and the Son feeling a different way. That's impossible. On top of that, do you know how Jesus intercedes for us? By living. That's it. He doesn't have to speak to the Father on our behalf. That's not what the Bible means. Jesus himself said, don't think that I'm going to speak to the Father on your behalf. No, the Father loves you already because you believed in me. Once we have been put into Christ, he doesn't talk to the Father on our behalf. He just intercedes by being alive because we have been put into him and we are in him and all that is his is ours. And that's how he's interceding for us. Oh, by the way, I got great news for you. Is Jesus ever going to die again? No. So would you say that your eternal life is pretty secure? Will he ever reject you? Will he ever condemn you? No. But it's time we put that on. It's time we put that helmet of salvation on and don't let the enemy mess with us anymore. Now, he's going to correct us. And there's going to be times we're going to feel like he's upset, but you've got to believe and know the truth. That's not the case. He loves you. And he loves you too much to leave you the way, they, well, the way you are. Go look at Romans chapter 8 again. Now look at verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tri- tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. You'll see this later on. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul wants us to understand That even though we still struggle with sin, even though Paul himself still wrestles with sin, he finds the law to be at work. That even though he's a new creation in spirit and his inner being, he wants to do the will of God. There's something there because he's still got a sinful fleshly body that's still under the curse that he's going to be at this battle. And sometimes he's going to lose. But there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, go back to Romans chapter 8 and look again at verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, we've already laid this out, but I'm going to remind you of this. The law, which is holy and good, could not make us holy and good because of the weakness of our flesh. As we've already looked at earlier in our study, the law fueled the sin already in our flesh. Remember how we looked at the fact that Paul said, uh, I didn't know what coveting was till the law said, don't covet. Then every covetous desire rose up in me. Before the law came, I, I was alive, but then the law came and I died. Remember that? And we looked at the fact that all of us are born dead in our trespasses because sin's already in our flesh. It's been and passed on to us from Adam. All of us are born already dead spiritually because of that sin. The law, all it does is just fuel it, bring it to life and have the, the sin that's already there reveal itself. Well, let me ask you a question then. 
if Jesus came in a human body, how come the law didn't bring to life the sin in Jesus' body? He was born of a virgin. He was born without sin. Look again at what the scripture said. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is very important. I want you to stick with me here. Did Adam, was Adam created with sin in his flesh? No. He sinned by disobeying God's command, and therefore sin came upon him, and then it was automatically passed on to everyone from there. Jesus is the second Adam. Who was Adam's mama? God. He was daddy and mama, wasn't he? God created him out of the dust of the earth. And Jesus had flesh like yours and mine, except it was not exactly like yours and mine. He was created by God. Now, let me stop here real quick and keep you from running down a road that's going to kill you. Well, he didn't have an earthly father, but we wrestle with whether or not how much part Mary had. And we try to get into, um, trust me, I'm, I'm going to keep you from getting into all this stuff. You, you're going to try to figure it out and you're going to hurt yourself. I've sat in the seminary classes and we've talked about the hypostatic union. And then there's people that try to break down the blood cells and well, it was Mary's blood or whether or not it was Joseph's blood and all this kind of stuff. All we know is, is that God put Jesus in Mary. That much we know. Did he use her egg? We don't know. And don't try to figure it out. But he was created and given a human body just like Adam. And that body had no sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. There was no sin in Jesus for the law to bring to life. Now, was he tempted to sin? Of course, because he had the same kind of body that Adam did. Adam was tempted. He gave in. Jesus was tempted. He never gave in. The second Adam came and did what the first Adam could not do and passed on to all of us. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verses 14 and 15. By the way, that's why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so important. That's one of those non-negotiables of the faith. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I love that. Jesus understands fully whatever struggle it is you're going through. Now, I want to show hands. How many of you here are tempted with sin? All right, now, help me out here. Another show of hands. How many of you have been tempted with every sin that's out there? Not me. There are some things that don't tempt me at all. There's other things that tempt me 10 times. You know what I'm saying? But the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He, he's, not unable to, to sympathize, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. He's been through that struggle. Let me say this to you as well. As a pastor for years, when people would be going through things, I used to always say, I know how you feel. Until one day, one lady goes, no, you don't. 
I just had a hysterectomy. You have no idea how I feel. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't know how you feel. But I was trying to be compassionate. I know how you feel. You know what's cool? Jesus knows. We're not going to take the time to go there because we've got a lot to cover tonight. But you want to have some fun? Try to imagine something you're going through that Jesus didn't experience. You got friends that have deserted you? Been there. You got family you think you're out of your mind? Been there. I mean, I could go on and on. Homeless? Been there. You could just go through it all. He's experienced a lot in that 33 years that he was on the earth, and he knows. Now, at the same time, go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Remember how that in the likeness of sinful flesh? One of our favorite passages of Scripture also has been pointing out that there was another likeness that will helpfully help us a little bit. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Did you catch that? There it is again. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, don't miss this. Again, the scripture shows that even though he was human, he wasn't exactly like you and me because he didn't have sin. Oh, but listen to what he says. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're in him, this mind is available and should be available to you and should be yours. Even though he was God and had all this power available to him, he humbled himself and he took a role the role of a servant, even though that role meant death on a cross. He submitted himself to the Father's plan for his life. By the way, let me just tell you now, you watch TV, you turn on the radio, there is a ton of preaching out there to Christians about how you've got all this power of God available to you, and you're an overcomer. And they're using Bible terms, but they're feeding the flesh to say you can be everything you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. And when the preaching is about you, beware. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Am I, am, are you and I in Christ? Are the power that raised Jesus from the dead available to you and I? But what if God chooses not to exert it? What if he chooses for us to go through a struggle? What if he chooses, like with Paul, not to remove the thorn? Are you willing to say, whatever it is your role for my life is, I submit to it? Or are you only comfortable with a God that you can use his power and his authority and make it about you? Now, I chased a rabbit. We don't have time to really chase, so we're going to stop there. The Bible also says, though, that he condemned sin in the flesh and he paid for the sins of the world with his own blood. Because he was a human and because he was tempted and he did what you and I and Adam could not do. He actually condemned sin by defeating it. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 6 through 15. 
The scripture, as, I'm gonna, as you're turning there, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, remember what we've just read. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the, he met the requirements of the law perfectly. And He's taking care of that. We're no longer under the law. We're now under grace because we're in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what Colossians 2 verses 6 through 15 says. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, and I'm going to show you this from scripture, defeated sin by living as a human, being tempted, yet not giving in. And then when he was put to death on the cross, he paid for the sins of the entire world. Now, there are those out there that will try to teach you that Jesus only died for the people that are going to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to show you this from Scripture. You'll see it. It's so clear. And I'll just give you another verse. You can look right down, double check later on. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. But go with me to Colossians chapter, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. I hope that what's said here will sink in in such a way that it'll help you with something that you and I struggle with sometimes. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verses 18 through 21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling who? The world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've already looked at this before. Did Jesus sin? No. Then how did he become sin? It was imputed to him. The sin of the world was put on Jesus, and he became sin. At that moment, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was separated from the Father on the cross. Let me ask you this question then. Um, 
Are you and I righteous in and of ourselves? Then how do we become righteous? The same way that Jesus became sin, we become righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and we are righteous. Now, a couple of things. Here it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And he's now given us the message of reconciliation where we say, okay, be reconciled to the world, be reconciled to God. Here's what I want you to hear. A lot of people think the gospel is God um, is mad at you, but if you'll ask him to forgive you, he'll change his mind and he'll forgive you. No, the message of the gospel is God has already paid for all of your sins. Your sins have already been forgiven. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven. You have to now be reconciled to God by believing in what he has done for you. Let me say something to you that may surprise you. You don't go to hell for lying. You don't go to hell for adultery. You don't go to hell for lust. There's only one sin that sends you to hell. Does anybody know what that is? It's the rejection of Jesus Christ or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said all sins are forgiven except this one. There is only one sin that wasn't covered by Jesus on the cross when he died for the sins of the world. And that is when the Spirit of God calls you, offers you this salvation, and you reject it. Now, if you choose to say, I don't want this salvation that's already been offered and paid for me. Well, then you're going to still have to pay for all your lust and your adultery and all that kind of stuff. That'll be heaped on you. But you go to hell, not because of all that stuff. You go to hell by, because you reject Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16. Verse 7, he says, it's good for you that I'm going away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. And verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin because men don't believe in me. John 3.18, exactly. The, the, the verdict has already been given. If you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. You reject that, you're already condemned. But did he die for the world? Yes. Now let me ask you another question. And I want honesty here, because this is where we want to get it to us a little bit here. How many of you still struggle with the fact that God has already forgiven and paid for the sins you're going to do tomorrow and the next day? Y'all kind of struggle with that a little bit? Let's be honest. We still do. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus died on the cross and paid for all your sins, how many of your sins were future? They all were. We have a tendency sometimes to think, okay, he's already forgiven me for the, funds, the ones I asked him to forgive me. But what about the one tomorrow? Let this truth sink in. He already paid for all of those sins and nailed them all to the cross. You're no longer under that. What you do now cannot affect your eternity in heaven or not. Now, it can affect your reward. It can affect your joy in this life as the Father works on you to get where he wants you to be. But there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's why you're going to see in a little bit, Paul says a few times, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. He's not under law. But we have a tendency to try to put everybody back under law. Did you get vaccinated? You're not a good believer in God. If you're not, or do you wear a mask? Or you, you know what I'm saying? We try to put everybody back under a law. A Christian's supposed to do these things or not do those things. Be careful. You don't want to go back under a law. Because if you're going to live by law, you have to do it perfectly. Thank God we're not under law anymore. Do we still sin? Yes. 
But for years, and I was taught this by preachers when I was a kid, that when I sinned as a Christian, God was upset with me and he would turn his grace toward me off until I asked him to turn it back on. I mean, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So if I would just say, Lord, I'm sorry, then he'll turn the grace back on. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Y'all know on the outside of your house, you have a little spigot where you can attach a water hose. Let's just imagine that that uh, water hose is attached to the spigot on your house and the water hose is there and you turn on the water and the, uh, sorry, the, 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 the spigot and the water's flowing through there. That's the grace of God continually flowing towards you. I was told that actually when I sinned as a believer, God would go and turn the grace off until I said, hey, I'm sorry, God, um, could you please turn your grace back on? And he'd go and turn it back on. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Actually, the grace of God is continually flowing, continually flowing. When I sin, I kink the hose. And you know what my loving father does? He doesn't sit back and say, well, I'll wait till he realizes he kinked the hose. He lovingly pursues me and taps me on the shoulder and says, you kink the hose. You kink the hose. Unkink the hose. Think about what Jesus was doing when he was washing Peter's feet right before Peter denies him. See, for years we were taught by preachers that Jesus was teaching them service. And because Jesus humbled himself and put on a towel and washed their feet, he was teaching them to serve each other. Well, the Bible does teach service, but that's not what Jesus was teaching in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. Listen to what Jesus says. Peter, Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, and Peter says, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. Because he thought that Jesus was going to serve him. I can't let you do that. Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. Later, you will. Don't miss that. If it was service that Jesus was teaching, Peter knew what he was doing. But it wasn't about service. It was about sanctification. Peter's, and then Jesus makes this statement, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Well, of course, Peter being Peter says, then give me the whole bath. And Jesus says, you don't need a whole bath. You've already been given the bath. You're already clean. You just need your feet washed. Oh, and by the way, in a few hours, you're going to act like you never knew me. Oh, you don't know me. Oh, trust me. I know you pretty well. Not only that, think of what Peter does. The scriptures, you put them together, shows that not only did he deny the Lord three times, the third time the Bible says he swore. We think that he just said a bad word. No. What he, when the Bible says he swore, this is what he said. I swear to God, I've never met the guy. That's pretty serious stuff, don't you think? Don't you think that's something that would get him rejected? I mean, he denied the Lord. Ah, but we got good news for you and me and Peter. Prior to that, Jesus had already said to him, uh, you know, before you were called Simon, now you're Peter. You're that new creation. And uh, you're secure. And not only that, did Jesus wash Peter's feet after Peter denied him or before Peter denied him? Before. In other words, he knew what he was going to do and he was already offering him grace and forgiveness because it's already been paid for. It's already been taken care of in the mind of God. You see what I'm saying? And that's what Jesus is saying. If I, your master and Lord, have offered you grace before you did it, 
You need to do the same thing with each other. Years ago, when I used to be a pastor of a local church and I would do premarital counseling, I would always sit the young couple down in my office on the couch and they're all excited about their marriage and everything. And I'd say, we got to talk about some stuff that's going to happen after these days. Because right now you can't imagine anything bad. Trust me, we're going to teach you how to fight good. All right, that's what I would teach them how to do. But at the same time, I would have the girl sit down and look at her her fiancé, and I would say to her, would you ever intentionally hurt this young man? She'd go, oh, no, I would never hurt him on purpose. Well, okay, well, tell him that. And she'd say, I'd never intentionally hurt you. I'd say to the guy, would you ever intentionally hurt her? No, I would never do that. Well, then you need to look her in the eye right now and tell her that. I will never intentionally hurt you. And I'll then say to him, okay, now lock that in your heads because you're going to hurt each other. You're going to do things that hurt each other. And you need to decide ahead of time when that happens. He didn't do it on purpose. I want to forgive him. Your heavenly father already knows what you're going to do tonight, tomorrow. And he's going to use it to shape you. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has already taken care of that law of sin and death, right and wrong. You're now under grace. You're in Christ Jesus. Are there right things and wrong things? Yeah, but the Holy Spirit will walk you through that. Well, just give me the list, Jim. No, you don't want to live by that list. You don't want to live by that list. You want to, you want to walk in the Spirit and live by that grace and let him lead you and guide you. If we are in him, we are already reconciled to God. Go to Romans 8. Look at verses 9 through 17. I'm going to give you a quiz on this passage, so pay close attention. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Jeremy, you can't answer because you were at Bible study last night. Yeah, it's all right. Don't answer once you remember the question. So this giving life to our mortal bodies, look again at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This giving life to our mortal bodies, is this speaking of empowering us to live in the spirit while still in the flesh? Or is it talking about future physical resurrection? Very good, because you're about to see Paul is using this section to make a transition. Do you remember, we've been talking in the study of Romans that salvation has three parts. Whenever you see the word salvation, we always read the day you got saved. 
But no, God sees salvation as all three parts. That's why the Bible says that you are saved, but you are being saved. And one day when Jesus comes, he's going to bring salvation with him. Why is he bringing salvation with him? I thought I already have it. Relax. Salvation involves three parts. Justification, the moment you're declared righteous and he seals you with his spirit. The Washing of your feet process, sanctification as we learn to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and allow him to have more control of us. And then one day, can't wait, glorification when we no longer have to wrestle with this war of our flesh. Correct? I'm just going to tell you straight up. I'm not suicidal, but I'm ready to go. But it's not because I've had back surgery and knee surgery and need more surgery. It's not because my body is falling apart, even though outwardly we are wasting away. The thing that I'm ready, the reason I'm ready to get out of this flesh is because of the exhaustion of the war, the battle. Now, part of that's my fault. Because I have not until later on in my life learned how to experience victory and the joy and the peace that comes from walking in the spirit. And I'm Praise the Lord, getting gooder at it. But at the same time, there's going to be a day in which I get a whole new body and it won't have sin and I won't have these wrestling matches anymore. And boy, that in and of itself, besides seeing Jesus, is what I'm looking forward to when I'm heaven in heaven. But Paul has been dealing with in the first few chapters of Romans justification. In chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's been dealing with the sanctification process And here in chapter 8, he's about to, in verses 18 and following, start moving into the glorification part. But he's talking about how God will give life to our mortal bodies. One day when we get our new bodies, but he's also talking. Look at the context. Go to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 9 through 14. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members or your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members or body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. All right. Now, look closely, though, at what Paul also said in Romans chapter seven, verses 21 through 24. In Romans chapter seven, verse 21. So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. We've been talking about that all night. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members of my body parts another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jump over to chapter 8. Look again at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I actually drew, an, uh, drew a line between those two verses, chapter 7, verse 24, and chapter 8, verse 11. I drew a line between the two with two arrows, and they answer the question. Of course, Paul answers it in chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. 
We're going to get to, next time we get together, the glorification part and all our new bodies. Can't wait to show you some really interesting things in chapter 8, verses 18 and following. But for tonight, in the time we have left, let's deal with the fact that God has also promised to give life to our mortal bodies while we're still in them. Don't just say, well, I'm just going to struggle with sin until I get to heaven. Well, there's going to be a battle for sure. But actually, I'm not going to ever teach that you will become sinless. There are those who try to teach sinless perfection. The Bible doesn't teach that. But I will say this. You won't ever become sinless, but you will sin less if you know how to set your minds on the things of the Spirit and not set your minds on the things of the flesh. That's what we have to learn to do, is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, look at verse 12, though. Between now and when we get our new bodies, we have an obligation. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And he says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy. All right? And then, of course, his spirit testifies with our spirit. They were his. Look closely. We have a debt. Does anybody understand how we're obligated now to live for Christ? Does anybody know why? Well, that's okay. That's what I'm here for. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verses 12 through 14. And then we'll jump to verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 19 through 20. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jump over to verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Don't miss this. When Jesus paid for your sins, he also bought you. If you say yes to him and you say, my life is yours, listen closely. You are submitting and, and, and acknowledging, submitting to him and acknowledging that you have now become his servant. Actually, the Bible word is slave. A bond servant or a bond slave. And in the Bible, the slaves would actually intentionally offer themselves to serve their masters willingly. But if your mindset is, thank you for paying for my sins, Jesus. Thank you for making it go, me able to go to heaven. But I'm going to live for myself now. Be careful. You might not have ever been sealed by his spirit. The Bible actually says that we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. Our attitude should be, what is your plan? 
Is there anything wrong with telling him what we'd like? No, he wants us. He already knows anyway, so you might as well say it. But he also wants us to have an attitude that says, not my will, but yours. I've given my life to you. And that's why the Bible teaches and Jesus himself said, unless you are willing to forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. I'm going to chase something real quick. We got time. Let me just say this to you real quick. The church has been taught to get bigger and bigger crowds. Jesus actually thinned his crowds. Did you ever notice that? He actually thinned the crowds. He would turn to them and they'd say, I'm going to follow you. The foxes have holes. The birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You might want to go rethink whether or not you sign up for this. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And upon hearing this, many of his disciples no longer followed him but left. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, you're free to go too, by the way. No one's keeping you here. Jesus stands in front of crowds and says, unless you're willing to hate father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Jesus actually thinned the crowds. I actually think the church would be a lot more powerful if we would actually focus on the ones who really are willing to live for him versus trying to have a big crowd. Because that's not what it's about. Now, good luck trying to teach a church that you're not to focus on growing and growing and growing because that's what we've been taught. And you'll get chased out of your job as a pastor if you try to thin the crowd. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Listen to what he says here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now, before we go any further, let me say this. I'm going to keep reading, but listen closely. He's just said that his divine power has already given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. We've already read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ the deity lived in bodily form, and we have been filled in him there are preachers out there will tell you you need a second experience you need an listen closely you have already received all of jesus you're ever going to get now it's a matter of learning how to let the jesus is in you have controlled when the bible says be filled with the spirit it means be under the control of the spirit you don't need a certain preacher to come lay hands on you and all of a sudden you get more jesus you've already received all of jesus you've received everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him and all these great promises are there for those who believe and act on them. So to stop thinking that you need another filling or anything like that. One Lord, one faith, one, one baptism. How do you do that? How do you do what? Let him take over your life. All right, well, that's what we're going about to get to. The question is, how do you let him take over your life? And you're actually going to learn that this is going to be a daily thing that you learn to do better and better. And some days you're going to fall. Some days you're going to do better. You're going to find yourself going forward two steps back of one. But you're going to find that there will be. So how do I fix that? Well, you don't. But here's what we're going to get to. Here's what we're going to get to. They're going to you'll have the victory, though. And that's I'm about to answer that question. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's read what he says next. All right. For this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
They will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they'll be richly rewarded for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here it says, here's how we find out and set in our minds and our hearts that we are his. Is, and I'm going to get right to it. We actually say, Lord, produce these qualities in me. Listen closely. Many of us have been taught the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and love and joy and peace. And then the preachers say, you need to be more loving. You need to be more patient. You ever been there? You ever tried to be more loving and more patient? You can't do it. Remember Colossians 2, 6, in the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, now walk in him. How'd you receive Jesus as Lord? You heard the offer. You believed that he would do it. You asked him to do it, and you trusted that he has, correct? Now, he has made us these great promises that he is going to produce in us. He says it in John 15, verse 5. If my words abide in you and you abide in me, you will produce fruit. How? Don't worry. When? Not your job. You are to abide in me. You are to set your eyes on me. You are to believe that I will do in you what I have promised, and you make every effort to say, all right, Lord, you said that one of the evidences of you being in me is patience. Produce it. And believe that he will. And watch him. But it doesn't matter. But again, people always say, don't pray for patience. No, no, no. Say, God, you said you would. That's an evidence of you being in me. Do it. I need it. Just like I needed you to save me, I need you to make me more patient. And I believe you will. I'm not going to try to be more patient. I'm going to believe that you're going to make me patient and I'm going to be seeking you to do it. And that's why we make every effort. Philippians chapter two, verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will. That's the desire and to act according to his good purpose. So here's how we live. And here's how we start seeing that experience of his fruit and his power. We know what he's promised and we ask him to do it and we believe that he will. Just how we got saved. Lord, you said that if I would believe that you would give me eternal life, I believe. Give it to me. And then he does something that we can't explain. And we go, I'm saved. I, I know I'm saved. Now he says, okay, I've given you a whole lot more promises. Now that you've put into me and I put myself into you, there's a whole lot more now. But they're only activated in the same way in which you got saved. And that's by faith. But unfortunately, too many of us were taught, now that you've been saved, you need to go to work for Jesus, you need to try to do this, and we fall flat. And then, of course, we start wondering if we're really saved, and we all went through that journey. But you know what's cool? The one who begins the good work, he finishes it, and he lets us struggle with that for a while, and little by little, he brings us into an understanding of the grace that we have in him. But all I can tell you is this, he said that he would believe it. What was that part you read, that whole section there? That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Now, we're going to wrap up to make sure that we stay with the group on Tuesday night. There's one last thing I want to pull out of Romans 8 in the section we just read, because we love to quote how we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ, but no one ever quotes the rest of the verse. You ever heard people say, we're joint heirs with Jesus. Praise the Lord. Well, that's not the rest of the verse. And if we're children, verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, suffering takes on all different types of forms. 2 Timothy chapter, two, chapter 3, verse 12 says, Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus even himself said, Blessed are the persecuted. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and following. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus even says, If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But I'm going to just back it up a little bit. And as much as, yes, you will experience persecution if you try to walk in Christ and walk in Jesus. By the way, you'll even experience persecution from other believers or those who claim to be believers if you try to walk in the Spirit not in the law. But let me say this to you. Why don't we work on suffering by saying no to the flesh? Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're in him, it's already available to you. That even though he was God, he didn't claim equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took the role of a servant even if that role meant death on a cross. Why don't we just start there? Why don't we start humbling ourselves enough to say, Lord, I want you to be glorified in my life by me saying no to my flesh and yes to your spirit on a daily basis and let that take shape however I want you want it to be. If there's other levels of persecution, you'll walk me through those when the time comes. But too many of us are ready to go to the front lines of the battle when we're not even winning the battle in our own flesh. So I want to challenge you. Let's start saying, all right, Lord, instead of me worrying about being persecuted by the world for my faith in you, wanting to go stand on a street corner and willing to be yelled at because you say you believe in Jesus, why don't we start with the process of saying, I want to add to my faith, which only you can do, virtue, Love, brotherly love, patience, kindness, gentleness. Lord, that's not easy for me because I want to be in charge still. And I find this law to be at work that whenever I want to do right, sin's right there with me. And that's a battle. But I want you to give me victory. You've promised that you would give life to my mortal body. One day I'll get a new one and that'll be awesome, but you also promised to give life to my mortal body now. We're going to close tonight with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen closely. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11, and then we're going to jump to verses 16 through 18. Remember how earlier tonight we saw for his sake we are given over to death all the time? We're going to deal with that more as we get into our study later on in the end of Romans 8. But a part of living for Jesus in this life will be suffering of all different types. But listen closely to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11, and then 16 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Who's the treasure? Jesus, Holy Spirit within us. What are the jars of clay? Us. Could he not only at the same time that he renewed our spirits, could he not have renewed our bodies at that same time too? But he's intentionally chosen to leave us in these bodies so that the surpassing power would not be seen to be ours, but belong to God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. Anybody else want to amen that one? But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
Some of us are struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. There it is again. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Jump over to verses 16 through 18. Here's your answer to your question of how. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We'll deal with that more when we get together next time. But let me just say this. Paul said that these light and momentary afflictions. Now, how many of you read that and go, come on? I don't feel like struggling in this life is light and momentary. Feels like I'm dealing with it every day. Feels like it's getting harder and harder. But you do remember who wrote that, right? Would you want to live the life that Paul had and the struggle that he experienced in his life? Oh, and you're about to see in the very next verse when we come back together in two weeks, in chapter 8, verse 18, he says this. He says, I consider that our present suffering is not even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Now, how in the world could Paul say that? As you're about to see, he had already been taken to see the other side. And he comes back and says, I'm not allowed to talk about it. But I can tell you this much. What you're going through here is light and momentary compared to what is to come. And we're going to start looking at that next week. I love you. We'll see. I'm sorry, two weeks from now. We'll see you in two weeks.